Sick of sorrow Sick of the pain Sick of hearing Again and again That there's gonna be Peace on earth Warcast for Catholics. The next several episodes of our podcast are going to feature recordings of live talks given at the Catholic Peace Fellowship's Spring Conference, neither left nor right, the heart of Christian peacemaking. We're going to hear from Jim Forrest, co-founder of the Catholic Peace Fellowship with Tom Cornell. We'll also hear from Michael Baxter, and finally we'll hear from a roundtable of Catholic conscientious objectors, Joshua Castile, Jonathan Lace, and Daniel Baker. We hope you enjoy these next several episodes, especially if you weren't able to attend the conference. There's a much-loved Russian saint, some of you may have heard of him, Seraphim of Sarov. Probably the most famous sentence that he uttered of his many, many teachings, but sort of sums up his message in his life. Acquire the spirit of peace, and thousands around you will be saved. Acquire the spirit of peace, and thousands around you will be saved. You'd be hard-pressed to find a Russian who knows a single thing about Christianity who hasn't heard those words. When others encounter Christ's peace in those who follow Christ, they can see the possibility of living free of a death-driven, fear-centered existence. This is why saints are so important. Saints being those people in whom we see the Beatitudes being lived. It's no longer a theory, it's something we have seen with our own eyes. You meet a holy person and your life changes. Consider the incredible influence of one modern saint, the servant of God, Dorothy Day. The influence that she's had on so many people and still has all these years after her death. She has given us a vivid idea of what it means to follow Christ, an impression of what it's like living in the kingdom of heaven, living Christ's peace, living in that peace. Even though we find ourselves in a world of bloodshed, of injuries and death, the world of cruelty and tragedy, a world of war. To be missionaries of Christ's peace was what, she, what we had in mind when we started the Catholic Peace Fellowship. It was not an ideological or political enterprise. Journalists were later to speak of the Catholic left. It was a phrase that became very popular. I think one or two books used it. But in fact, we had nothing to do with the left. Well, of course, we knew people on the left. Sometimes we cooperated with them in some of the protests we took part in, but we were not part of the left. We knew considerably more about St. Benedict and St. Francis of Assisi than we knew about Marx and Lenin. Our inspiration came from the Gospels, from the sacraments, from liturgical life, from the witness of the saints, and of course from the teaching of the Church. While many people helped us, our two principal mentors were Dorothy Day and Thomas Merton. Dorothy was close at hand, we talked to her often, and were part of the Catholic Workers' Extended Community. In Merton's case, though there were just two or three visits to the monastery, the contact was mainly by letter. And these letters remain timely. I recommend them to you. They're in print. You'll find them in a book called The Hidden Ground of Love. Much of 
What we did in the Catholic work, in the Catholic Peace Fellowship in those years was in large measure thanks to Thomas Merton's guidance, which mainly came to us by letter. He was a kind of spiritual father by post. Now, as they had so much influence in what we did, I think it might be useful, very briefly, to consider what Merton and Dorothy had in common. I would put at the top of this list their great gift of hospitality, their ability to make people feel welcome. In Dorothy's case, the greatest monument to her life, of course, are all those houses of hospitality that exist thanks in large measure to her. We even have one in Amsterdam, not far from where I live. As a Trappist monk, Merton was part of an ancient tradition formed by the holy rule of St. Benedict, one of whose precepts is each guest shall be received as Christ. One of the most important sentences to come down to us in the Western tradition. Each guest shall be received as Christ. Not only was Merton part of a community of hospitality, but he managed personally to reach out through letters and visits to all sorts of people. In those days, <coughs> people who would not have expected a friendly dialogue with a Catholic monk. For both Dorothy and Merton, to, Im to imitate Christ meant to welcome the other. The other is the neighbor, whether familiar or unfamiliar, including the stranger, the outsider, the afflicted, the alien, the misfit, the bum, the enemy. Hospitality was a refusal to treat anyone, even your enemy, as an enemy. As Merton wrote in, the, in an early draft of the Seven Story Mountain, his autobiography, the ascent of the soul to the personal mystical union with God is made to depend in our life upon our ability to love the other. There is something else they had in common. Both Merton and Dorothy Day were people of prayer. I mean, you could say, well, of course, this goes without saying, but in fact, let's say something about it. You know, for, for Merton, as for any Trappist monk, prayer was life's main event. It was to lead a life of prayer that Merton had entered the monastery. He hadn't in mind to become world-famous author Thomas Merton. He, what he definitely intended was to be a person hidden in Christ's through prayer. Well, Dorothy was no monk. I have never known anyone with a more rigorous spiritual life and a greater commitment to attending Mass than Dorothy Day. When I think of her, I must say my first and primary image of her is on her knees at prayer. At one of the several churches near the Catholic worker or at the chapel we had at the Catholic worker farm. We had permission from the archdiocese to reserve the sacrament. I remember how Dorothy, whenever she was at the farm, and easily, more, more easily than any place else, you could find her in the chapel on her knees at odd hours, engaged in intercession, as I discovered. I, mean, I wondered what she was praying about. And one day, noisy, nosy kid that I was, noisy too, uh, I went uh, and peeked in the book, because I'd see she had all these pieces of paper that she was working with while she was praying. She'd been called away by an urgent telephone call, so she'd left her papers and prayers and missiles. But, <laughs> And, uh, true, you know, you can confess in public sometimes. And, and uh, I, I looked at this, and it was just page after page of names, people for whom she was praying. I remember being quite impressed to notice that one of the pages was especially for people who had committed suicide. Prayer, 
undergirds hospitality. Prayer is a pathway to meeting others no less than meeting God. For both Dorothy and Merton, it's impressive to see their capacity to enter into dialogue with others, not only Catholics, but other Christians, which we take less, we find less surprising today than was in the case at that time. Not only other Christians, but people of other religious traditions. And not only people from other religious traditions, but people estranged from belief. They both had a great sympathy for, compassion for people who, for one reason or another, were estranged from belief. Anyone who was close to Dorothy learned by their example how important it was and is to lead a deeply rooted, disciplined spiritual life. Prayer and sacramental life are not items to be worked into our agenda if we happen to have a little spare time. They are absolutely basic. Without them, all sorts of worthwhile things we might wish to do are likely to go off the track or to become extensions of our own greedy egos rather than acts of love and prayer. Both of them made good use of confession, incidentally. Not the most popular of sacraments these days. I think of Dorothy heading off every Saturday night to go to confession. I once asked her what she had to confess. I I guess I could have made some guesses myself, but... uh, (laughs) My bad temper, she said. My impatience. On another occasion, she told me confession gave her an opportunity to nip sins while they were still in the bud. I recall a story Dorothy told me about advice she received in confession one year, the time before I had known her. For many years, she told me, she'd been a heavy smoker. Well, I'd never seen her smoke a cigarette, so this was news to me. Her day began, she said, with lighting up a cigarette. Her hardest voluntary sacrifice every Lent was giving up smoking, but having to get by without a cigarette made her increasingly irritable as the days passed until the rest of the Catholic work community was pleading for her to light up a smoke. You know, she told me. Stubborn lady that she was, Dorothy didn't give in, give in, but it was a grueling act of abstinence and hardly less grueling on everyone close to her. You know. With another Lent approaching, Dorothy was resolved to once again fast from smoking and told her confessor of her intention. He, can, he, he responded by urging her not to give up cigarettes this year. It was too hard on her co-workers, he said but instead to pray daily, dear God, help me stop smoking. Dorothy told me she used the prayer for several years without any apparent impact on her need to smoke. Then one morning she said she woke up, reached for a cigarette, realized she didn't want it, and never smoked another. And a very interesting tale. Both Merton and Dorothy were ascetics. Trappists did not own anything, period. Catholic workers didn't own very much. And what little we owned sometimes got stolen. <laughs> Remember Dorothy telling me the hardest thing about community for her was all her books got stolen. <laughs> Dorothy called this voluntary poverty. They set an example of not seeking happiness in possessions. Just as challenging to me as Dorothy's, Dorothy's personal ascetic discipline was her attitude toward the church. She was often criticized for being so disobedient in the political world and yet so obedient as a Catholic. It isn't that she wasn't aware that the church is always urgently in need of reform. She was quite able to compare certain priests and bishops to blowfish and sharks. (laughs) On one occasion, she went so far as to join in a picket line in front of the Chancery Office in New York in solidarity with striking gravediggers. But her basic attitude toward the church was one of obedience and gratitude. 
This wasn't simply a tactic she embraced in order to not be so quickly dismissed by the hierarchy. As she once told me, we do not save the church, the church saves us. There were, some many, there were some minor church teachings that she more or less ignored. She once chastised me for putting something in the paper about a plenary indulgence that had been authorized by Pope John XXIII. But I don't recall her ever rejecting anything that was in the Catholic Catechism, including plenary indulgences. She saw herself not as a prophet whom God had commissioned to chastise the church, but simply as a woman struggling to live the teachings of Jesus, announced to his followers, and grateful to be a member of the Catholic Church, which for all its human failings, preserved the gospel message and welcomed her into sacramental life. Another point Merton and Dorothy had in common was a commitment to nonviolence. Not once in her 47 years as editor of the Catholic Worker did Dorothy publish any words of approbation regarding violence, but rather continually reaffirmed her commitment to imitate Christ who neither killed anyone or blessed any killings. Total number of people killed by Jesus Christ, zero. Total number of people whose death was blessed by Christ is also zero. Something to think about. Merton had made his views known early on in his autobiography, The Seven-Story Mountain, where he explained his reasons for being a conscientious objector. Quite remarkable that it made its way into the book. Not everything did. But here's what Merton writes in Seven-Story Mountain. God was not asking me to judge all the nations of the world or to elucidate all the moral and political motives behind their actions. He was not demanding that I pass some critical decision re re defining the innocence or guilt of those concerned in the war. It would have been World War II. He was asking me to make a decision, a choice, that amounted to an act of love for his truth, his goodness, his charity, his gospel. He was asking me to do, to the best of my knowledge, what I thought Christ would do. After all, Christ did say, whatever you have done to the least of these, my brethren, you did to me. Years later, in the period when he was one of the main advisors to the Catholic Peace Fellowship, Merton wrote, this is in Seeds of Destruction, the Christian does not need to fight, and indeed it is better that he should not fight, for insofar as he imitates his Lord and Master, he proclaims the Messianic kingdom has come and bears witness to the presence, this Greek term, Kyrios Pantocrator, meaning the Lord of creation, bears witness to the presence of the Kyrios Pantocrator in mystery, even in the midst of the conflicts and turmoils of the world. Merton may have been, in the Latin sense of the word, a pacifist, that is, a peacemaker, but he was certainly not in favor of passivity. What Merton found most valuable in the just war tradition was its insistence that evil must be actively opposed. It was this that drew him to Gandhi, to Dorothy Day, and to... Martin Luther King. One of the most significant publications that the Catholic Peace Fellowship produced in those years was an essay by Merton. I wish I had brought a copy with me, but I still have one, called Blessed Are the Meek. This was um, an essay on the roots of Christian nonviolence, or the Christian roots of nonviolence. It was especially written for the Catholic Peace Fellowship, and perhaps it's time for the Catholic Peace Fellowship to reissue the booklet and make it available on its website. I know that the trustees of the Merton Literary Estate might complain, but he did, after all, write it for CPF. Another area of agreement for Dorothy and Merton was their non-confrontational approach to reform and renewal in the church. 
And we've already talked a little bit about that anyway, so I won't develop that here. There is no time here to go into detail, but both of them, along with the Catholic Peace Fellowship, were deeply involved in the Second Vatican Council, especially the content of Gaudium et Space, the pastoral constitution on the church in the modern world, the council's final document, owes a great deal to Merton and Dorothy and even to the Catholic Peace Fellowship. Maybe at some future conference, Tom might give a, a lecture on that topic. Another lesson in peacemaking we drew from both Dorothy and Merton is that difficult though it may be at times, we shouldn't be embarrassed to speak openly about God. God is a three-letter word that many people go to great lengths to avoid. Merton and Dorothy took, plans not, took pains not to secularize their vocabulary. It was Dorothy who said, if I have achieved anything in my life, it is because I was not afraid to talk about God. Well, Merton wrote in The Sign of Jonas, the important thing is not to live for contemplation, but to live for God. Or as he put it in a letter to me at a time when I was struggling with discouragement, all the good that you will do will come not from you, but from the fact that you have allowed yourself in the obedience of faith to be used by God's love. Let's conclude by focusing on another lesson in peacemaking that was central to me, central to what both Merton and Dorothy Day had to communicate to others, their amazing compassion toward people with whom we were at odds, their readiness to meet and talk with opponents, in Dorothy's case, I recall how surprised I was to hear her speak in positive terms about the bishops, such as our own Cardinal Spellman, who, to tell you the truth, were regarded with outspoken contempt by most liberal Catholics. She was very resistant to the kinds of enmities that easily take root in people at odds with the world in which they live. While Dorothy could sometimes be quite abrupt and on occasion lose her temper, in fact, patience and kindness were her default settings, and they extended to cardinals and politicians. Compassion was certainly a major theme in Merton's letters to would-be peacemakers. Again and again, he urged us to have more sympathy for the people who felt threatened by protest. He tried to convince us that self-righteousness will benefit neither ourselves nor anyone else. But without compassion, Merton pointed out, the protester tends to become more and more centered in anger. And far from assisting others on the path to conversion, he becomes an obstacle to changing the attitudes of others. As he put it in one letter to me, we have to have a deep, patient compassion for the fears of men, for the fears and irrational mania of those who hate and condemn us. These are, after all, the ordinary people, the ones who don't want war, the ones who get it in the neck, the ones who really want to build a decent new world in which there will not be war and starvation. Yet, as Merton pointed out, most people are irritated or frightened or upset by agitation even when it protests something, militarism, nuclear weapons, social injustice, which objectively endangers them and all those whom they love. As he put it in another letter, people do not feel it at all threatened by the bomb, but they feel terribly threatened by some student carrying a placard. <laughs> Without love, especially love of opponents and enemies, Merton insisted that neither profound personal nor social transformation can possibly occur. 
the paramount importance of love. There's a point he dwelt on in a letter to Dorothy, no doubt aware that she would, as usual, be reading this aloud to all the staff at the Catholic Worker. It's one of my favorite Merton letters, and I'll read a part of it to you. Persons are not known by intellect alone, nor by principles alone, but only by love. It's something like the letter from Paul that Brian read to us a little while ago. It is when we love the other, the enemy, that we obtain from God the key to an understanding of who he is and who we are. It's only this realization that can open to us the real nature of our duty and of right action. To shut out the person and to refuse to consider him as a person, as another self, we resort to the impersonal law and to abstract, quote, nature. That is to say, we block off the reality of the other. We cut the intercommunication of our nature and his nature, and we consider only our own nature with its rights, its claims, its demands. And we justify the evil we do to our brother because he's no longer a brother. He's merely an adversary, the accused. To restore communication, to see our oneness of nature with him and to respect his personal rights and his integrity, his worthiness of love, we have to see ourselves as similarly accused along with him and needing with him the ineffable gift of grace and mercy to be saved. Then instead of pushing him down and trying to climb out of of the pit by using his head as a stepping stone for ourselves, we, we help ourselves to rise by helping him to rise. But when we extend our hand to the enemy who is sinking in the abyss, God reaches out to both of us. For it is, first of all, he who extends our hand to the enemy. It is he who saves himself in the enemy, who makes use of us to recover the lost groat, which is his image in the enemy. Merton noticed that when compassion and love are absent, actions that are superficially nonviolent tend to mask deep hostility, contempt, and the desire to defeat and humiliate the opponent. And here's how I put in another one of the letters of that period, writing to me. One of the problematic questions about nonviolence is the inevitable involvement of hidden aggressions and provocations. I think this is especially true when there are elements that are not spiritually developed. Probably not too many of us would claim to be spiritually developed. In this enormously subtle, it is an enormously subtle question, but we have to consider the fact that in its provocative aspect, nonviolence may tend to harden opposition and confirm people in their righteous blindness. It may even in some cases separate men out and drive them in the other direction, away from us and away from peace. This, of course, may be as was with the prophets part of God's plan, a clear separation of antagonists. But, 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 we must always direct our action toward opening the eyes of others to the truth. And if they are blinded, we must try to be sure we did nothing specifically to blind them. Yet there is that danger, the danger we observe, one observes subtly in tight groups like families and monastic communities and peace groups, where the martyr for the right sometimes thrives on making his persecutors terribly and visibly wrong, to seek refuge in violence. In our acceptance of vulnerability, we play on the guilt of the opponent. There is no finer torment. 
This is one of the enormous problems of our time. All this guilt and nothing to do about it except finally to explode and blow it out in all our hatreds. Race hatreds, political hatreds, war hatreds. We, the righteous, are dangerous people in such a situation. We've got to be aware of the awful sharpness of truth when it is used as a weapon. And since it can be the deadliest weapon, we must take care we don't kill more than falsehood with it. In fact, we must be careful how we use truth, for ideally, we are the instruments of truth and not the other way around. Both Merton and Dorothy were firm believers in patient efforts simply to communicate to others what the gospel is all about, what the church teaches, and the value of paying attention to saints who in various ways set a timely example. This is not so much carrying out what is sometimes called prophetic actions as, engaged, as, as engaging in ordinary acts of communication. I mean, for us at the Catholic Work, Peace Fellowship and the Catholic Worker in the 60s, we were in constant tension between this very modest and undramatic work of simply communicating basic things to people and being in our anguish drawn to acts of civil disobedience, which I think probably had some value but probably achieved much less than what we were doing with this more... Uh, prosaic part of our lives. Forgive me for speaking at such length. There are nearly 20 years now have passed since I became an Orthodox Christian, and you may wonder what the hell is he doing here at the Catholic Peace Fellowship. You know, I've been deeply engaged in the Catholic, uh, in the Orthodox Peace Fellowship for a long time now, and yet, as you no doubt noticed, I feel a very deep bond with the Catholic Church enormous sense of gratitude for its social teaching. I stand in awe of the sanctity of the recent pontiffs, including Pope Benedict, now reigning. And I thank God daily for all that I have received, all of, that all of us have received from the Catholic Church, and for giving us such God-revealing people as Dorothy Day and Thomas Merton. It's good to be part of the Catholic Peace Fellowship. Back in 1961, I was a meteorologist working at the U.S. Weather Bureau with a little Navy unit just outside of Washington, D.C., in Suitland, Maryland, right next to the CIA headquarters, as a matter of fact, and read in the Washington Post one day, just after the Bay of Pigs invasion, that the Catholic worker and some other groups were having a silent prayerful vigil in front of the CIA's office inside Washington, not the big headquarters you see in the newspapers and on television, but a sort of gone-with-the-wind, Tara-like mansion they have in town where Alan Dulles, who was then the head of the CIA, had an office and various other senior staff. And I must say, I didn't think I was doing anything brave or unusual, uh, well, maybe okay, unusual, to take part in this protest of the Bay of Pigs invasion, but I didn't think I was going to get myself into hot water. So it's interesting to think about what the story that Griff just told us. Uh, uh, I just thought, is any American's right, whether you're in uniform or out of uniform, to take part in political dialogue, especially if it has moral content? 
And it was a big surprise to me when I got into trouble for that. I wasn't, and I, I could see them up on the lawn of the CIA taking pictures of us with long lenses, and I was curious at the time why they didn't bother to come down and take better pictures with sh sh short lenses. Uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, none of us would have minded, and we were certainly not making a big secret of who we were or anything like that. But a couple of days later, my commanding officer told me to uh, report immediately to the, to the uh, Naval Intelligence Service Headquarters on the Potomac, and there I underwent this very, uh, I must say, frightening interrogation uh, by two officers of the NIS, uh, where this option was presented to me. You can decide later on which, which one I opted for. As a matter of fact, I didn't go to prison. Uh, I was very fortunate. Uh, being in Washington, being close to the Catholic worker community. I'd been visiting the Catholic worker in New York. I'd been doing some voluntary work with the Catholic worker community in Washington. Uh, there immediately people were suggested to me to help me uh, seek a discharge as a conscientious objector. One of them was Bob Havder, priest at the Catholic University teaching liturgics. And uh, I remember Bob Havder, I never had met before, but Dorothy Day's suggestion, gone up to talk with him, being very hospitable to me, and loaning me a book by a, Franc a Dominican theologian who, in Hitler's years, as a, uh, as a German Catholic pacifist, had been condemned to death by the Third Reich, Franziskus Stratmann. And Father Havde had loaned me the little book that had been published in English, the work of Father Franziskus Stratmann, War and Christianity Today, a fine book, by the way, uh, and I, I remember my executive officer asking me if I could please explain to him this conscientious objection stuff. He said he'd been in the seminary for six years and had just left at the last minute because he couldn't face the prospect of life without a wife. But he said, in all those years at the seminary, I never uh, heard anything about conscientious objection. Do you have anything I could read to help me understand this strange view <laughs> that you seem to have adopted. Well, I loaned him Franciscan Stratman's book. He read it that night, the whole book. It wasn't much of it. It was a very thin book. Uh, and found me in the cafeteria the following morning and shook my hand with tremendous vigor. and said, Forrest, I want you to know I'm very proud of you. And I'll do everything I can to support you in your efforts to get an early discharge. I know in retrospect that he sacrificed promotion from rank of, ca of uh, commander to captain for doing that. I'm sure my commanding officer would not forgive him for doing this, for this act of uh, friendship and solidarity with me at that time. It was a great act of courage and Christian love. And it paved the way for me to get that discharge and uh, join the Catholic worker staff in New York. Okay, all by way of building on Griff's introduction, I hadn't intended to talk about that. I want to talk about learning to be peacemakers. <clears throat> Every Christian is called to be a peacemaker. In the Beatitudes, Christ's own brief summary of the gospel, he identifies peacemakers as the children of God. But in fact, even after years of effort, not many of us are very good at being peacemakers. What we are good at is creating division, irritating our neighbors, ignoring and avoiding a great many people, thinking all too often of how much, the be how much better the world would be if only this person would disappear. Yeah. We tend to love ideology more than we love our neighbors. We find a great many things to argue about among ourselves. Yet despite our many failures at being peacemakers, we keep trying, and sometimes we actually achieve something. Occasionally, figs do grow from thistles. 
and sometimes water turns to wine. What I would like to talk about is some aspects of what I have learned about peacemaking over the years, and as this is a Catholic Peace Fellowship gathering, I'd like to connect it to the early history of the Catholic Peace Fellowship. Perhaps the first lesson is that even, after, even, that even very small endeavors can have significant results. When we started the Catholic Peace Fellowship back in 1964, we had only the faintest idea that it might make a positive difference in the world and in the church. The creation of the Catholic Peace Fellowship was originally an idea that came to us from a Protestant, from John Heidbrink, a Protestant minister on the staff of the Fellowship of Reconciliation. John was deeply impressed by Pope John XXIII, and he was an attentive reader of Dorothy Day and Thomas Merton. When John wrote me at the Catholic Worker suggesting starting the Catholic Peace Fellowship, it was toward the end of 1961. It was only about half a year after I'd left the Navy as a conscience objector. Since my discharge, I'd become a member of this Catholic Worker community in Manhattan, St. Joseph's House down on Christie Street at the time. I shared John's letter with Dorothy. Dorothy was skeptical. Those Protestants just want to use you. <laughs> Well, the FOR was, you know, about 99.3% Protestant at the time, and, and by no means were all Protestants in those days sympathetic to the Catholic Church. But when we actually started the Catholic Peace Fellowship in the fall of 1964, Dorothy was among the first to join, and she also became a member, and indeed a very active member, of the advisory board that was created. In fact, the Catholic Peace Fellowship was nothing more than a twig on the Catholic worker tree. Tom Cornell and I have both been part of the Catholic Worker community in New York. Everything worthwhile we've done in our lives ever since is in large measure the result of having been close to Dorothy, Dorothy Day. Had there been no Catholic Worker movement, there certainly would have been no Catholic Peace Fellowship. In starting the Catholic Peace Fellowship, Tom and I and those who were cheering us along, quite a few of them, wanted to concentrate on one aspect of the Catholic Worker message its insistence that people are called to do the works of mercy and thus not called to commit acts of war. You should not feed the hungry with one hand and destroy their crops with the other. You shouldn't clothe the naked with one hand and drop bombs with the other. Conscientious objection. That was something incidental. You couldn't be a guardian of life, and have your finger on the trigger at the same time. Since its early years, the Catholic worker had supported conscientious objectors and even called for the formation of a mighty league of conscientious objectors. Whether this is the phrase of Dorothy Days or not, we do not know. Mike, Mike's wearing a button that credits it to Dorothy, but he says it might be that she stole it from somebody. <laughs> you know. In 1964, the Vietnam War was beginning to heat up. The August U.S. troop levels that year were raised to 21,000. Now, 21,000, actually, when we look back on the Vietnam War, that's not very much, but at the time, it seemed to us an awful lot of young men risking their lives and endangering the lives of others. In fact, before the war was to end, as you know, something like 58,250 U.S. soldiers were to die far more than the 21,000 that were there in 1964. In 1964, no one had any idea how huge a war America was wading into, 
how life-consuming it would be, how much havoc it would cause. By this time, I'd, I'd left the Catholic work community. I was a journalist working for a New York City newspaper. One of my earliest CPF undertakings at that time, and something I did in my spare time, was to write a short history of the war in Vietnam. I recall being surprised as I combed the public library for information how little there was about Vietnam, this war that was to cause the deaths of so many. By the start of 1965, <clears throat> thanks to several donors, there was enough financial support for the Catholic Peace Fellowship to allow Tom and me to work full-time for the Catholic Peace Fellowship. First me, and then it seemed like five minutes later, Tom Cornell. We got paid the enormous sum of $65 a week. We rented an unused room from the War Resisters League down on Beekman Street, just a block from City Hall in Lower Manhattan. We published a newsletter, launched occasional pro projects, but it soon emerged that our main work was draft counseling. It was not unusual to have up to 50 people a week seeking help and advice, some by telephone, some by letter, some face to face. Part of this influx of young people seeking counsel was the consequence of our having published a small booklet. I meant to bring a copy, forgot to do so. We'll dig one out of our library, send it to you. It was a booklet called Catholics and Conscientious Objection. And I know that the CPF, in fact, is now uh, Mike Baxter specifically hoping to do a new version of this to bring it up to date. <clears throat> Catholics and conscientious objection. We worked very hard on the text. It was, although I actually was the quote writer, it was it was very much a community effort. Tom was certainly involved. We sought advice from various scholars, theologians, and others who might have some input to the drafts that we were writing. Thomas Merton was a particular help. Finally, we submitted it to the Archdiocese of New York, applying for an imprimatur. I don't know how much imprimaturs are sought anymore. Do any, are imprimaturs on books these days? Is it still part of Catholic publishing? You know, it's a, not as, it was more or less obligatory in those days, if you were a Catholic writer, to seek an imprimatur, the Latin word for let it be published. And it was an official declaration by the local ordinary that the, uh, in the case this would be Cardinal Spellman, that uh, the publication was without theological error. Well, to our astonishment, our booklet received the imprimatur from the archdiocese. I mean, if we had received the Nobel Prize for Peace that week, we would not have been more surprised. You know. So, it was a kiss from God, as Thomas Merton put it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I cannot tell you how that imprimatur helped to open the doors. That booklet went into, I think, probably the vast majority of Catholic parochial schools across the country. Not immediately, but over months and months. Uh, I can't recall how many we printed, printing after printing. How do you, how many, do, say it again? Quarter of a million. Quarter of a million copies. It was an inexpensive thing. It fit in a, a business-sized envelope. Uh, I think it must have been about 32 pages. Had a picture of the, the ruins of Dresden on the cover. Look, looked at across the back of a sculpture of an angel. It was a remarkable picture of the devastation of war. And it was a booklet, I think, which 
partly, only partly, there are many, many factors, but it, it was a factor in the, in the remarkable uh, development that the largest block of conscientious objectors to the war in Vietnam came from the Catholic Church in America. That's really remarkable, especially when you think that not many years before, Catholics desperate to prove their loyalty in, a, in an anti-Catholic culture were the most uncritical about foreign policy in the United States. You, if you read, and I think it's published in one issue of Sign of Peace, the declaration of the uh, American Catholic hierarchy at the beginning of World War I, this absolute, I mean, talk about imprimaturs. This war had the imprimatur of imprimaturs. The, arch, arch, the, the archbishops of uh, the American Catholic Church were eager to demonstrate how totally uncritical they were of what the United States was going to do in that war. And then to jump forward in time, not many years, I mean really in the course of time, 50 years isn't that long, and to see so many thousands and thousands and thousands of Catholics young men at the time, because that was women were not required to serve, taking that stand. Remarkable. Peter Moore, now, another aspect of our learning process was, was paying attention to something Peter Moran had said. If you want to talk to the man in the street, you have to be on the street. Peter Moran. Or if you want to pronounce it probably the way his mother did, Pierre Morin, but he anglicized it. It's useful to publish, it's even essential to do so, but words on paper are not enough. Tom and I did a great deal to speak in public all over the country, at churches and schools, seminaries and universities, most of all Catholic high schools. The events were organized by local CPF groups that had sprung up. Doors seemed to fly open, though sometimes I have to admit it was the back door. Mostly the front door, but every now and then the back door. I recall an invitation to speak to a group of students at the Seminary of the Archdiocese of New York, where Tom Cornell now teaches, but in those days the atmosphere was a little bit different. It was definitely an unpublicized, off-the-record, nighttime conversation by invitation only. Uh, the, the seminary rector would not have been pleased. Now, what's quite possible, one of the people who took part in that meeting that night is now the seminary rector. <laughs> It was clear that night at the seminary that the word peace is often a problematic word, a word that alarms many people. Certainly the New Testament meaning of peace was far from obvious to a great many people, including a lot of Christians. Part of our work was to try to restore the word, a word that had been damaged by political abuse. I remember an experience I had in Moscow some years ago. I was going to give a talk in a parish near the Kremlin, St. Cosmos and Demian, and uh, the pastor of the church had given me use of an outer office next, adjacent to his own office where I could sit and take some notes and get, collect my thoughts. But I had to share this with a couple of icon restorers, and I watched them working on this uh, husband and wife uh, with little balls of cotton and alcohol cleaning off the... Uh, soot of many thousands of candles that burned over the generations blackening this icon so that you couldn't really see what the icon represented until two or three hours had passed. I was, of course, I'd given up writing my lecture altogether, just watching with fascination <laughs> and uh, watching them taking the, cleaning the varnish of all the smoke from candles and little by little an icon of St. Nicholas of Mira emerged. It was beautiful to watch this emergence, this resurrection of this image 
long lost in the smoke of prayer. Well, you know, the same thing happens to words. Words, too, become damaged. They, too, become covered with smoke. I recall uh, half a century ago when I was growing up in New Jersey, a motto, motto that was then canceling postage stamps. I don't, do, do we still have mottos on postage stamp cancellations and envelopes in America? I mean, living in Holland, I'm not keeping up with this. Uh, it was pray for peace. Many millions and millions of stamps were canceled with this three-word sermon. Meanwhile, every citizen was being urged to pray for peace, and the government was exploding nuclear weapons in the Nevada desert and the South Pacific, and, of course, fighting a war in Korea. In the same period, the U.S. Strategic Air Command, a section of the Air Force responsible for fighting nuclear war, adopted the slogan, Peace is our profession. Now, it may even still be the case. I have no idea. Wouldn't be surprised. Not long ago, when there were still two superpowers, the Soviet Union had its own very similar ideas about peace. And believe me, having written a couple of books about the, Russia in those years, uh, if you had a dollar for every Soviet poster and banner that had the word peace on it, mir in Russian, believe me, you'd be nearly as rich as Bill Gates. For the leaders of the Kremlin peace matter world, whose political and economic structures were in harmony with the policies of the USSR. Of course, for the United States, the peace was synonymous with a world conformed to those policies which favored the interests of the United States. For both superpowers, weapons of mass destruction, <clears throat> not only nuclear but chemical and biological, were an essential element in their strategies for peace. Peace was thus a consequence of our readiness to commit mass murder. In nearly every context of common use, the word peace has to do not with what is, but what could be. Peace is seen as a future consequence of right choices made in the present. But what about peace in the New Testament? Here the word is used well over a hundred times. Remove those verses in which it occurs and you no longer have the good news of the gospel. For example, consider these familiar words from Christ. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. For this, I have, I have, this, I have said this to you, that in me you have peace. In the world you have tribulation. Be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Now, the remarkable thing about peace, as Christ uses the word, is that it's a condition that exists in the present tense. I often think you could divide Christianity not on denominational theological lines, but also on present or future tense lines. There are those Christians who speak about Christ in the present tense and those who speak about Christ in the past tense. Christ said this, Christ did this, or Christ is doing this, Christ is this. The present tense Christ and the past tense Christ the historical Jesus, and the living Christ. Christ speaks of peace as something that exists in the present tense, not something to hope for in the future once we improve society. But from the point of view of this peaceless world in which we actually find ourselves, is such a thing possible? 
As the poet Bertolt Brecht said, a smooth brow betokens a hard heart. He who laughs has not yet heard the terrible tidings. In brief, a socially responsible person has no right to be at peace. How dare Christ give anyone peace in a world of daily crucifixion? What he should have done is bless the troubled of heart. From time to time, peacemakers have to open the dictionary and do a little verbal archaeology. The earliest New Testament texts, of course, are in Greek. And here, the word normally translated as peace is irene. What is this irene? It's a noun, has its roots in a verb, aero. I'm going to spell it in English, modern English letters, E-I-R-O. What it means is to join, to connect, to unify. It's a verb that suggests being in communion. If you consult a biblical dictionary, irene is defined as a state of national tranquility, a time of exemption from the rage and havoc of war, peace, harmony, and concord between individuals, a condition of security, safety, prosperity, felicity, you can also get into the deeper waters where it's understood as something that we cannot achieve but which is given. It's that peace which can only be given by the Messiah. Irene sums up what it means to be in the kingdom of God. And thus a person no longer paralyzed by fear of death or to put it positively, someone in a paschal condition. A person who has risen from the dead. Another word to consider is blessed. We say, blessed are the peacemakers. But what does blessed mean? Sometimes it's very lamely translated as happy. But the <clears throat> Greek word here is makarios. Dig into the roots of makarios, and you discover it means sharing in the condition of the gods. These roots go back, of course, to pre-Christian usage. And what is the main attribute of the gods? Immortality. Thus we might say risen from the dead when we are using the word blessed. Risen from the dead are the poor in spirit. Risen from the dead are those who mourn. Risen from the dead are they who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed, Risen from the dead are the meek. Risen from the dead are the merciful. Risen from the dead are the pure in heart. Risen from the dead are those who make peace. Risen from the dead are those who accept persecution for Christ's sake. All the Beatitudes, which in effect are a ladder of divine ascent, have to do with how we enter the kingdom of God. It's a project that has nothing to do with future expectations or the result of social restructuring. Although, of course, an aspect of peacemaking is social restructuring. It's a project that has nothing to do with future expectations or social restructuring, but simply how we are living day to day, here and now, in this damaged world. If we don't know Christ's peace today, neither will we know it tomorrow. 